May the 22nd. Wow. May the 22nd. Daylight's almost gone. It's about to be winter. May the 22nd, 2016. Lecture discussion number 242 on the Book of Romans. And uh, we find our little merry band of travelers confronting Deuteronomy chapter 22. So, there's where we are in Deuteronomy 22 at some point today. Now, we'll wander around as usual. Which, uh, if you have read uh, Deuteronomy 22, you have probably discovered it is a demanding uh, piece of Scripture. Tremendously demanding. And for those of you who do the homework assignments, and I'm saying this for our vast Internet audience, high vast Internet audience, we all know here that nobody does the homework assignments at beautiful downtown Cliffside. It's, it's my little ineffectual attempt to motivate someone, anyone, somewhere, anywhere to actually try to do the homework. Anyway, if someone did the homework and nobody did the homework, but if somebody did and no one ever will, they might have found that not only is Deuteronomy 22 filled with challenges, but also this is the case for Deuteronomy 21 and Deuteronomy 23. Those chapters, and again, the chapters are not inspired. They are notations that have been put in by men. Some will say that God inspired these chapter and verse references I think that you would have difficulty defending that. But in this case, Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23 are all incredibly difficult areas of Scripture. It should be noted that Deuteronomy 21 is preceded or precedes Deuteronomy 22. So here's the order: Deuteronomy 21, Deuteronomy 23. I'm sorry, 22 and Deuteronomy 23 is immediately subsequent. Now, let me put this on the board. Deuteronomy 21 comes first, 22 comes second, and 23 comes third. Now, I say many times, where can you, this is amazing, where can you find this kind of insight, right? How does he do it? It's only half a joke. The point being is the madness of my method is this. When you find yourself up against Deuteronomy 22, like we're going to, then the thing that solves it for you is to go one chapter back and one chapter in front of it. Actually, the opposite of what I just circled there. When you're up against an Old Testament verse that are uh, seemingly undecipherable, just start to expand. Gather on both sides as you can. It's always the best plan. And usually that's going to enable you to see the thesis or the subject, the primary emphasis of the passage, the purpose, for lack of a better way to put it. And if you have a hold on God's purpose or why God said this to Israel, chances are you will not careen into the ravine. How does he do it? I know poetic turn of the phrase. Okay. If someone did that, which was the homework assignment, and no one did, but concede the hypothetical for me, be kind, the non-existent someone would have come across uh, at Deuteronomy 22, 18 through 23, 
Uh, hang on a second. That may not be correct. Deuteronomy 21. This would be the rebellious son. If you uh, wander around talking to the people that hate Scripture, they're going to bring up the execution of the rebellious son often to you. It's a place in Scripture where God is evil. The execution of the rebellious son who is hung on a tree but whose body is removed and buried the exact same day. He's not allowed to hang on the tree much longer than that one day period. That is not to be done. So the body had to be removed and buried that day, as opposed to what the Gibeonites did to seven. Uh, So you begin to find out that God has a standard, and then when that standard is violated, you ask, why is it violated? But this is where it is established. We have a rebellious son, and he is executed, and his body is buried that day, even though it was hung on a tree. So they hung him for everyone to see why he was hung. And of course, he was rebellious to what? Do you know the story without reading it? He refused uh, to honor his father and his mother. So he violated one of the Ten Commandments. And for that, he was executed. And everyone said, well, this is, or everyone hates the Bible, says that this is a place where the Bible is obviously well outside the bonds of goodness or morality. But they never understand why the rebellious son was really executed. What in fact he was actually doing. They just assume immediately that God is capricious or arbitrary or foolish or just hostile and violent. Which is never the case. God is always good. So something must really be wrong with this rebellious son for him to be executed like this. What was he doing? Always the question to ask, as it is with all of these kinds of things. But if the if the person if you had gone back and read that, you might have remembered um, Ananias at Acts five was buried the same day as his execution. So I have this complying with Deuteronomy twenty one twenty three here. Okay, that tells me to take that man down and bury him the day he was executed. I have that exact same compliance with Ananias in Acts 5 and Sapphira in Acts 5. So Deuteronomy 21-23 and Acts 5 are going to interconnect. That becomes important as we go ahead. And of course, had you found that, you would have paid particular attention to the, what comes at the end of uh, Deuteronomy or at the end of this section on the rebellious son. He who is hanged is a curse of God. And that, by the way, in Galatians 3.13, is attributed to Christ. Not maybe in the way you think, but the verse, Deuteronomy 21.23, he who is hanged is a curse of, of God, is something that Paul uses to refer to Christ's work in Galatians 3.13. In that, in that, Christ has redeemed us who are cursed and transferred our curses to himself, the Yom Kippur goat, right? Leviticus 16. So we know that this verse on the rebellious son somehow has application to Christ, particularly through Leviticus 16. And we also know that Judas hangs from a tree. 
27.5, I think. I hope that's right. Judas connects Deuteronomy 21.23 and Galatians 3.13 because he hangs on a tree. And Judas hangs from that tree. Also Acts 1.16-25 for those of you on the internet. Judas hangs from that tree after he throws the Zechariah 11, uh, 30 pieces of silver to the temple potter. I love my new pen from Japan, by the way. So, Judas is part of this. Would expect that. If it's applied to Christ, I would expect that Judas would know it in some way. Suffice to say, Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 23 is numbered among the most difficult sections in the entire Old Testament, probably in all of Scripture. I can't read it. There's no time today. <coughs> but just recognize we have to head this way. For today, note that Judas is connected to the executed rebellious son. That's all you need to know now why he was executed. Once you connect him to Judas, you can find immediately why it is that he is connected. Just to say this again for those of you on the Internet that may not know my positions on Judas, Judas, without dispute, is the most mysterious of all men who ever lived. And that is not hyperbola. He is an incredible subject. Uh, I can't even begin to describe. He is the son of perdition so named by the Lord God Almighty Himself. When God calls you the son of perdition, not a son of perdition, the son of perdition. He calls Judas that in John 17:12 through 15. Only Judas is the son of perdition. The son of perdition is also the man of sin. Judas and the man of sin are called the son of perdition. The evil thing, Christ calls him. The lawless one. The lie. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3-12. Never underestimate the deep mystery of the man of sin. Whenever he shows up, you know that you have much to think through and much to work through and much to discover. But for now, just pay attention to the proximity of this rebellious son right in front of Deuteronomy 22, where we are today. Right before the tassels are explained is the rebellious son who hangs on a tree but must be buried that day, that goes to Ananias then, that goes to Sapphira, that goes to Judas, that goes to Christ in Galatians 3.13, goes to Zechariah, because after, right after Judas throws that money, which he knows why he is throwing it, he hangs himself. And he picks the field that he wants to be hung over. Extraordinarily complex. So, know that Deuteronomy 22 and the rebellious son intrinsically linked, not severable. Now, last Sunday we read Deuteronomy 22, 1 through 12. We went through it, we got a start on it, we're going to get more of a start today. We did so because of Numbers 15, 32 through 36, right? Numbers 15. 
Oops. 32 through 36. That's the man gathering wood on the Sabbath, who is also executed on orders from God. Well, guess how that works, right? Here I am, an executed rebellious son, and now an, an, an executed man gathering wood on the Sabbath. And all of the congregation, I hope you remember, were required to participate in the execution of this man gathering wood. And out came the obvious question exploding from this, as you know. How evil, how wicked was this man gathering wood on the Sabbath? Just as how evil, how wicked was this rebellious son? How evil, how wicked is Judas? Far more, by the way, than either one of those. The wickedness of Judas so far extends, I can't even describe it. There is no real relationship because Judas is well beyond them. But again, how evil, how wicked was this man gathering wood? What was his plan? How did the wood feature into or figure into the plan? What is the purpose of the wood, if you want to ask it that way? What is the symbol of the wood? I have a man gathering wood. Does he know what? Gathering wood means symbolically. What is the symbolism of wood? Why did he do it on the Sabbath? That's our questions. I hope you remember them all. And all the congregation of Israel is present, and all of the congregation participates in the execution of this man. God wanted to make sure that everybody in Israel knew why this man was being executed, which renders the obvious question, or renders the obvious question, do we know why the man was being executed? At least I hope you know that he has some relationship to the man that was hung in Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 23, and Judas in Matthew 27, 5. All of the congregation did know why they executed the man. I have proof of that. My proof is the blue tassels. God said to them, because we, you know why, we executed this man, I want you to add blue tassels to the corners of your talits as a remembrance of this specific event. And I want you to do these blue tassels are to continue throughout the generations of Israel. They do it today. I make a talit, I put blue tassels on because of the man gathering wood. Remember that with the blue tassels. Because you see, the hearts and, of, and eyes of Israel are inclined, God says in Deuteronomy 15.39. They're inclined towards harlotry. So I had a man gathering wood. Israel had to execute him, all of Israel. They had to put the tassels on. And the reason they had to put the tassels on is because their hearts and their minds are inclined towards harlotry. What's the obvious question? How did they commit harlotry at Numbers 15, 32 through 36? They have to remember what happened at Numbers 15, 32 through 36 because they are inclined to commit harlotry. And they should remember also God says to them, not only do you need to put these tassels on for what this man gathering wood was doing and your inclination towards harlotry, but also you have to remember that I am the Lord God of creation and I brought you, Israel, out of bondage, slavery, and death in Egypt. That is also part of all of this. And God says, I am the one who redeems. 
I am the only one who saves the dead. I am the one who saves the cursed. And this memorial, if you will, these talits, these, uh, the blue tassels on the talits, that's established. And the exodus from Egypt and the man gathering wood is the substrate, if you will, the platform upon which we're going to build today. Okay? With all of that, we went off last Sunday to solve the meaning of the blue tassels. Now know this, though, really fast, that the blue tassels are not just one, they're just one part. I have also inclination towards harlotry. Harlotry. And then I also have the exodus. Those three constitute a whole. That's our platform, and we're going to build off of that. And so we started on the blue tassels. Figure out what the blue tassels mean. Figure out what blue means. This will eventually get us into Fermi's paradox. Remember Fermi's paradox? I covered it a few months ago. Fermi said, why is there only life on this one place in all of the universe? That has to be explained. There is no life anywhere in the universe except this one place. Why? Eventually that comes to the forefront again. But off we went, like I said, to find out the meanings of the blue tassels. And our first stop was Deuteronomy 22, 1 through 12. That's where we went first. Okay, so I'm going to erase all of this. You have it memorized. The people on the Internet can stop video. Both of the people watching this, please write, both of you. I know there's two at least. Okay, there's three, maybe four. Let us know where you are. Send us pictures of you so I can disseminate them. You all see us. Okay, you see only me. I weep for you. Those three things, of those three things, we're only doing this one. And that took us to Deuteronomy 22. Got all of that, I hope? And that's where we found, or we read it last week, and what did we find there? Do you remember... I hope you do. We found a list. Yay, lists. And then that list, by the way, explains what blue tassels mean. And keep in mind, we could have spent the next few months accumulating blue just out of blue threads, just out of the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is loaded with blue threads. Uh, but uh, being the fearless leader here and in possession of the most holy dry erase pen from Japan that I love now. It is really cool. I have chosen Deuteronomy 22. Ask why I did that. Why did I choose it? Do not assume as you are usually inclined that it is madness. It's not. I actually have a carefully conceived plan. And we're going to read Deuteronomy 22 again, reread it, and then we're going to take notes of the components. And hopefully, as I do that, you begin the process of figuring out what these mean and why they explain and how they explain these blue tassels. As they do, start get your investigation hats on if you want to think of yourself that way. These are the clues. God has meaning in everything he puts, and it is layered. It is literally actually the case, but it also has layers 
of intelligence that we can't even begin to imagine. So here we are again, Deuteronomy 22, 1 through 12. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and hide yourself from them. Okay, if you see a loose ox or a loose sheep, don't hide yourself from them. Don't, don't ignore them. Don't go the other way. You shall certainly bring them back to your brother. And if your brother is not near you or if you do not know him, brother bringing another Jew, right? Um, you do not know him, then you shall bring it to your own house and it shall remain with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. You shall do the same with his donkey. By the way, how do you keep it? How long you got to keep it? You keep it until you restore it to him. How much does it, how much does an ox eat? You have to keep that ox or that sheep until your brother comes for it. You restore it to him. You shall do the same for his, with his donkey, and you shall do the same with his garment. And any lost thing, your brothers, which he has lost and you have found, you shall do. Likewise, you must not hide yourself. Now, I'm going to read verse 4. I was going to stop there, but I'll read verse 4 now and so we don't have to get it again. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fall down along the road and hide yourself from them. You shall surely help lift them up again. So here's our list. we got to get rid of blue tassels and harlotry and exodus. Just know that those three are three parts of a whole and they all fit together. And God has a lesson for the nation of Israel and therefore us here. So, we'll start with an ox as opposed to a sheep. And if the sheep does what? Goes astray. What's the song? What's the verse? All we like sheep have gone astray. Right? So that's the first thing you would do is you'd find every sheep that's gone astray. You can start at Isaiah 53.6. That's where we learn about sheep going astray. Just saying, don't hide yourself. Don't hide yourself. What's that mean? Certainly bring them back. Not think about it. Certainly. Bring them back. What's the obvious question there? Where were they going? Where is back? If the brother is not near, so I have a brother, and he's not near. So what does that mean? Oops. They've gone a long way, haven't they? I have a sheep that has gone astray a long way because the brother's not near. Or if you wish, the Jewish person is not near. And you, or you don't know him, which means what? Same thing, right? I have a guy that's not near, don't know him. You take that sheep and that oxen, you bring them to your own house. 
and there they shall remain. So, so far, this is the lesson. You are out and about, and you see an ox and a sheep that have gone astray. And you get involved immediately. That's what God is saying to Israel, to the Jewish people. You go get that ox and that sheep, and you bring them back to their Jewish brother. And if you don't, if he's not near and you don't know him, then you bring them to your own house, and there they remain. Got it so far? That's your job. Every single Jew does this. I don't know what the modern equivalent would be, but uh, we can. And you keep them there until that brother seeks them. Okay? Have to get rid of Isaiah 53 6. I'll make it smaller. Then you restore them. So again, I ask the question, how long does this take? Notice that word restoration. And you also do the same with the donkey. Find a donkey. Now why is he saying ox, sheep, and donkey? Do you think it's arbitrary? Did God just say, well, okay, if you find an ox, you find a sheep, find a donkey. He did not. There's great meaning in all of these things. They, they are pieces of a whole. And then this one, garment. You found a lost garment? Where do I find lost garments? If I find your garment, I take it home and I leave it. I wait for you to come and get it. How did you lose your garment? The answer to that makes the understanding of garment pretty obvious, I hope. Any lost thing. I have to do this as a Jew for any lost thing. That he has lost. You have found. By the way, is this the exact opposite of finders, keepers, losers, weepers? Does it get any more opposite than this? You can't get any more opposite than this. You must not hide yourself, he ends with. You must not hide yourself. Again, and then I read verse 4, and it adds, uh, you've got to lift up all fallen donkeys and oxes. Lift up. Okay. Clearly, that last part is linked to what? If I told you that uh, if there was a fallen oxen or a donkey that has to be lifted up, where do I go? You don't hide yourself. Says it again. Don't. 
Hide yourself. If you're walking along and you see a donkey that has fallen and an ox that has fallen, you don't keep walking. You stop and lift that donkey and that ox up. A bunch of obvious questions, but let me ask you, where, where should I go in the New Testament? Where do I have someone fallen? Well, I'm going to tell you that uh, uh, you should go to Luke 10, 29. I think you'll see why, 29 through 37. What's that? That is the good Samaritan. parable of the Good Samaritan. It's not really a parable. It's really a lesson about Jesus Christ. Christ is in that, in that particular parable, if you will. He is the Good Samaritan. No, that's your clue that that's who Christ is in that particular uh, passage. When it says it's good, then he's the one that is good. Certain, he's a certain Samaritan who pays the price. Ultimately, he pays the price for the man who has been left by the side of the road, the fallen man. Who passes by and doesn't help the fallen man? The priest and the Levite. They violate Deuteronomy 22, 1 through 12. They pass by. They hide themselves. What did they, what did they hide themselves from? I had a man who has been stripped by thieves laying in the road. A man, a fallen man. What's missing on that man? His garment is missing. They've taken it. Thieves take garments. That's an important thing to know. The fallen man is described as naked and half dead. By the way, that's just half dead. As opposed to... That's the first death, isn't it? As opposed to the second death, Revelation 20.14. Half death is okay. Second death, bad. The meaning, let's make sure I didn't, no, I didn't. The meaning of Luke, the meanings of Luke 10, 29 through 37 um, are very, very obvious when you recognize that Christ is the Good Samaritan there. When you find Christ, then, the, then Luke 10, 29, 37 becomes bright and clear. And eventually we're going to meld it into Deuteronomy 22. Not today. Today we're going to focus on the book of Romans. I'm going to read Luke here in a second, but I can't really break it down. I'll move that in a second. But it's, it's going to give us Deuteronomy 22. Remember, this is a study on the book of Romans. I say that kind of as a joke. Okay, really as a joke. But the whole point of this is to find Christ in there. Christ is in here. And if you find him, then it makes sense. If you don't, it never does. Ditch diving now is inevitable. If you don't have the Christology, the, the Christness, the Christology, I'm sorry, the, uh, oh, I can't come up with a word. If you do not have Christ in this, you will not have the, what it means. Okay, let's go really fast. I'll read this. I've got some time. I'm doing okay. Uh, Luke 10, 29. But, uh, yeah. but he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And then Jesus answered and said, A certain man. Whenever Christ answers you with a parable, what's usually the problem? You're in a real bad spot. Yeah. Think Joseph speaking to the brothers in Egyptian. Then Jesus answered and said, a certain man. Now, Christ is the certain man. 
in this, in, uh, no, he is a certain Samaritan, sorry, went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. So he left Jerusalem, he went to Jericho. How's the guy doing right now? He went from Jehovah Jireh Salam, God provides himself peace, to Jericho, which God destroyed, and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing. Again, thieves strip you of your clothing, wounding him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, is there any chance in God's eyes? The fact that Christ says by chance, that tells you something immediately. A certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He hid himself. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. He also in violation of Deuteronomy 22, 1 through 12. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. This is Christ. Find Christ. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, Holy Spirit and blood, those are symbols, and set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. On the next day, he departed. The Good Samaritan came, journeyed a long way, healed this man, if you will, and departed. He took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay, repay you. So which of these three do you think was the neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him, go and do likewise. Christ paid the price, gave him oil, gave him blood, gave him a garment, right? That is Christ's, re, uh, that is Christ's redemptive work. So. Again, notice thieves strip their victims of their garments. That helps you understand what garments mean or is garment in this. And when I get to 22 of Deuteronomy, I now have a pretty good idea what a garment is. If you find a garment, you get it back to the man that lost it. Your job as a Jew is to find lost garments and restore them to people. That's what God is telling Israel. So who are these thieves, by the way? And why do thieves always take the garments? Have you figured out who the thieves are? Thieves take garments. Have you figured out what garments are? Garments are now identified, aren't they? I hope if not, then go to Genesis 3.21. All garment verses refer back to Genesis 3.21. What's 3.21 of Genesis? God puts garments on Adam and Eve. He takes off the fig leaves and he covers them with garments that he himself makes. The thieves go about stealing the garments. If you find a garment, you give it back. You hold it. You restore it. Luke 10.29 refers back to, or 10.29 through 37, goes back to Genesis 3.21. Why do you suppose, just to change now, why do you suppose the ox and the donkey fell? Why do they fall? Why are they by the side of the road fallen? Why did they need help to stand up? Let's ask it that way. Obviously, they fell. 
They collapsed under the weight that they were carrying. They were overburdened. They had more weight on them than they could carry. Those of you who have been in the agricultural industry, you will see men who will overload their animals and those animals will fall. Yes, sir. Well, the, the talit might, but the garment is another question completely. It's more of a full covering. We'll get into that, by the way, when we go through verse, uh, the next verses that are in Deuteronomy 22. The ones that make people mad because they have no idea. Oh, look at this person. Pick up the, the, the pen. Okay. Such flexibility, if you saw that on the Internet. Actually, my right leg hurts so bad I can't bend it. Okay, obviously they fell, they collapsed under the weight of their burden. Somebody put more weight on them than they could carry and they fell. Which should immediately direct us to the New Testament complement of that, right? If I have something that is overburdened and has fallen, where do I go now? Remember, God gave this to Israel in Deuteronomy 22, so I'm going to find God give us something similar to it in New Testament, all right? Won't be hard. Let's go Matthew 11:28 through 30. You know the verse, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you Sabbath. I changed that. I will give you rest. Remember, I have a man gathering wood on rest day and he's executed I will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest Sabbath for your souls for my yoke is easy my burden is light hopefully you see what Christ is doing God has designed Christ has designed Jewish society with himself is the purpose. Everything that he gave to Israel is testifying of him. He has woven himself. He's in the fabric of Jewish society and laws. So they can't do anything without stumbling across Christ, if you will. That's a horrible way to put it because they stumble over Christ in Scripture. But they really can't do anything that they do without Christ being at the center of it. So this order from the Lord God of Israel to lift up the fallen ox and donkey will testify of Jesus Christ. Jesus cannot be more clear about that. He is the one who lifts up all of those who are fallen. He gives rest. He is the great Sabbath rest. Rest from the burden of the curse of death. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the uh, he's the one that lifts up lifting up. I'm sorry, let me put it this way: lifting up the heavy burden or the heavy laden. That's a resurrection representation. He's taking the weight of the curse off of you and lifting you up, resurrecting you. The heavy burden of death is on all of us. Come to me, Christ says, all who labor. I will give you rest. I will give you life. I will give you resurrection. I will give you Eternal salvation from death. Jesus Christ gives life to the dying. He's going to remove the yoke of death and replace it with his yoke of life. And that becomes very important here to understand. Notice that his yoke of life is very light. It's easy. He's gentle. He's lowly in heart. 
What is he telling you about himself? Is he a control freak? No, he is gentle. He's good. He's kind. Don't assume, by the way, that this is a simple statement. Creator God is saying this about himself. And he's drawing a distinction between two yokes. I have two yokes. I have the heavy yoke and I have the light yoke. Which one will you take? You want the one that kills you? Let me put it this way. I have the, the dead one and I have the living one. Or the dead one and the life one. Which one will you take? Seems like a pretty easy choice. For some reason it's not. But he's saying there's two yokes. It should be noticed that there's no such thing, by the way, as a non-yoke category. God does not tell you that there is a non-yoke category. You've got to have a yoke. You're going to have an easy one or a gentle one or a life one. Or you're going to have a heavy one, one that makes you fall, one that kills you. Those are your two choices. There is a non, there is no such non-yoke. You're going to have something on you. Does God, this by the way answers the question. Does God have the right to rule over you, yes or no? People say, God does not have the right to rule over me. Well, you have the heavy load. You have the dead yoke. He does have the right to rule over you. There is no other way to go through this. That's the inherent question, the implied choice of Matthew 11:28 through 30. Which yoke will you carry? His or the one that destroys you? Again, no non-yoke choice. This is the truth that escapes most people. They do not comprehend why the Creator of all things must end sin. He's going to. You're going to have his yoke on you, which is he is gentle, he is kind, he is loving, he is life. His yoke is light and easy. Or you're going to have the heavy one that makes you collapse and die. Doesn't seem like much of a choice to me. But again, they don't understand that the creator of all things will end sin. Anyway, can't get bogged down with that again. But let's at least take a quick look and Matthew 11:25 through 27 because this is so important I can't pass it by. At the time this is right before he talks about yokes. At the time Jesus answered and said, "I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things." God hides things. Deuteronomy 22, there's something hidden there. Can you figure it out? Can you find it? Because here's how he does it. You have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them to babes or to babies. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been been delivered to me by my Father, Jesus Christ says. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son will reveal him. The one whom the Son wills to reveal Him. That is extraordinary. Jesus Christ speaking aloud to the Father, saying that there is hidden things. Revealing the hidden things. Hidden things that the supposed wives, wise people don't find. But the infants, the so-called infants, do find. After this, Jesus Christ explains the triune Godhead to us. He says that only the Father knows the Son. Ask why. And then he says, he explains it, only the Son knows the Father. 
To know the Father, what does he mean? The totality. Only the Father knows the totality of the Son. Only the Son knows the totality of the Father. And the only other one that knows this as well is the one that reveals the Son. In other words, infinity knows infinity. The one who knows, the one whom the infinity, I'm sorry, and the one whom the infinity Son wills to reveal his infinity, if that makes sense. So the Holy Spirit just is also infinite and part of the triune Godhead. All three of them are here. Infinity is necessary to know and infinity is necessary to reveal infinity. So all of that, I hope, makes sense. Anyway, back to Numbers 15.32, Deuteronomy 22. So back we go. Man gathering wood on the day that testifies of the resurrection of Christ. The Sabbath. That's the day that Christ removes the yoke of death. That's the foundation. The resurrection of Christ is the foundation of salvation. That's what Paul Corinthians says. What was the wood for? How much wood had he gathered? Is it safe to conclude I think it's safe to conclude, I'll say it that way, that this man despised the Sabbath and what it stood for. All of it. All that it has. And that his intention was to profane the day that signifies the resurrection of Christ and everything that was that is dependent on the resurrection of Christ. So that would be our salvation, by the way. So ask why. Why would this man hate the salvation, the resurrection of Christ? The Sabbath rest. The removing of the curse of death. Why would he hate that? And how did he intend to desecrate the Sabbath? To pollute it? To pervert it? And how does his reasonings and intention become something that God symbolizes with the blue tassels? From the talits of the Jewish men. Obviously, you will hopefully remember Matthew 23, 5. Let me put that up there. Christ curses the Pharisees in Matthew 23. It's very important. In Matthew 23, 5, he specifically mentions the tassels. He says that the Pharisees, uh, who, by the way, understood... By the way... Uh, did I make it all the way to there without a by the way? That's, by the way, pretty good. The Pharisees understood these blue tassels. They knew what they meant. They're not stupid. They're just evil. They're cold-blooded killers. So they had looked this over and figured out what those blue tassels signify. We're following behind them in some sense. But remember, they're confused. They consider themselves wise and prudent, but us babies, we got an advantage. The Pharisees went about with their blue tassels, they lengthened them. They made them more ornate. That's what Matthew 23, 5 says. They wanted their blue tassels to be seen by everybody. And that the blue tassels would then be manifested as privilege. In other words, men would see these longer, more ornate, fancier, better blue, nicer tied blue tassels and they would reward the Pharisees with all these great privileges that they wanted. And Christ condemns this. He describes these Pharisees that have these lengthened tassels as evil killers, serpents doomed to hell. So they had taken this 
meaning and twisted it, but they did know what it was. And they, he also said, Matthew 23, 4, what you do, you, those of you who lengthen your tassels, you weigh men down with heavy, heavy burdens. You bind those burdens to them so they can't get them off and you collapse them and kill them with them. And that, that's God saying that to the Pharisees. And that being said, now we can start to glean some heavy, I'm sorry, some um, valuable information from the Pharisees what they manipulated their blue tassels to mean, and we can apply it here. So we can see that the Pharisees, God says, you are doing the opposite. You're not lifting anybody up. You're actually the ones overburdening the donkey and the ox. So now we can figure out what the donkey and the ox are, as well as the ox and the sheep. These are the ones that are burdened and collapsing. Don't hide from them, God says. Take the burdens off of them. Give them their garments back. The Pharisees would be inclined to utilize the blue tassels in the opposite direction of God's purpose. So whatever the Pharisees were doing, we can assume that this is the opposite. If the Pharisees made them a symbol of status and power and rank and piety, then we can rightly, logically assume that God purposed the contraposition or the contrapositive. So all of these elements in Deuteronomy 22, every one of them, individually and collectively, present the meanings of the blue tassels, which I have given to you now. You should have enough information to go from without me. Christ at Matthew 23, 4 through 5, charges the Pharisees as being in violation of Deuteronomy 22, 1 through 12. That would mean... That they hid themselves. He says over and over again, don't hide yourself. You must not hide. Don't hide yourself. You have to lift them up. You have to lighten the burden. If you find someone that has gone astray, someone that is lost, you hold it until the one that owns it comes for it. Who's the one that owns it? Find Christ in this. And if you don't know Him, that's okay. You hold His stuff. Anything that He's lost. What do we know about him? We know he's Jewish and we know he's coming. And he wants his stuff. And those blue tassels signify that. See, all of Deuteronomy 22, 1 through 12 tells you that you shall make tassels on the four corners of the clothing with which you cover yourself. That's the last verse, verse 12. So all of this stuff, and this, by the way, is just the first four verses of that. All of this stuff teaches you about the blue tassels. The Pharisees hid themselves. They did not return the oxen and the donkeys and the garments and any lost things. What do you suppose they did with it? Instead, they kept what they took. I guarantee you they did. They lengthened their blue tassels, which was an indication that they had they knew what the blue tassels meant. And they were trying to demonstrate that they're the ones that are doing what the blue tassels mean. When Christ is saying, no, you're doing the exact opposite. You're the one collapsing the donkey and the ox. You're lifting nobody up. You're stealing the garments. You're the thieves that are stripping these people and leaving them dead. They attacked the disciples over the Sabbath, by the way. You remember that? Matthew. Oh. I'm about ten seconds beside my, main, my mind and my mouth. I have a time lag there. They attacked the disciples over the Sabbath, didn't they? 
They attack Christ over this, the Sabbath all the time. This discussion is about what do we do on the Sabbath? They hate the Sabbath. What is the Sabbath? It's resurrection to life. They hate resurrection to life. So we can deduce, I think, that they are themselves fully active on the Sabbath. They're telling you what? Don't do anything on the Sabbath. You can't do anything. You can't do a thing. You just sit and you you stay there. I don't believe they followed that for a second. I think they're constantly evil and the Sabbath is an opportunity. They hate, despise the Sabbath. If I tell you, okay, it's illegal to guard the bank on the Sabbath, who do you have to worry about? You have to worry about the guy that made that rule. It is illegal for you to come to the church on the Sabbath and count the money from the offering. I, I, as pastor, decree that no one can count the money on the Sabbath. So we just have to put it in a paper bag. We'll get to it Monday. Meanwhile, who do you have to watch out for? That's right, the sneaky pastor with the big house and the nice motorhome. Did you see my motorhome? Knock on the door of the person that owns that. Find out if it's me. It's not. <laughs> so I think the, the, the Pharisees got all of this. Wouldn't that make sense? While demanding that all of Jewish society stand still and be immobilized, they would have their Pharisees going around uh, telling everybody, I saw you moving on the Sabbath. You can't move on the Sabbath. I think they were, however, fully operational. Their criminal operations at maximum. Christ makes that clear. Matthew 23 calls them killing machines. Just consider how much livestock they could confiscate with no surveillance. How many garments they could strip. God has set into his word the meaning of the lost sheep that has gone astray. We can find out who that is. You know who that is. Who is the lost sheep that has gone astray? That's us. What were the Jews supposed to do? They were supposed to find the lost sheep and take him to their house and wait for his owner to come. Did they do that? They did not. And by the way... They're supposed to memorialize their understanding of this by putting blue tassels. Blue tassels signify that they understand this principle, which takes us back to Numbers 15. Why they put blue tassels after they executed somebody who hates the Sabbath and intended to profane it. The Jew was to return the lost sheep to its rightful owner, to its shepherd. Therefore, they would recognize the great shepherd, the good shepherd, when he came. They would know that he would be a Jew. They would would lift up the burdened servant ox. They would lighten the heavy weight laid upon the ox. And Christ says, you're not doing that. You're doing the opposite. You're killing the ox and the donkey. And you're slaughtering the sheep. You're stripping off the garments and leaving men naked and dead. They were to do the opposite. And if they had done the opposite, then they would recognize the connection to the work of the Messiah. Israel was the ones who were supposed to be restoring the garment covering. How do I restore your garment covering? Well, I can't in the sense that you have to believe. But I am the one who is assigned, so are you, by the way, who are assigned to finding people's garments and getting them back to them. Don't hide yourself. 
All of this garment restoration is typifying the redemptive work of Christ. The Jews, us, are not to hide ourselves when we see somebody who is stripped and naked and dead. We're supposed to find, there's your applicational sermon. We're supposed to give them a garment. What is the garment? It is Genesis 3.21. What is the garment? It's the blood of Christ. That's what this is doing. The blue tassels have something to do with an understanding of the blood of Christ. And there's your start to Deuteronomy 22. And your meaning of the blue tassels. When you have the meaning of the blue tassels, what do you have? You have what the man who was gathering wood was trying to do. When you, especially when you connect it to what immediately comes after which is the core of rebellion. That we will do on the 12th of June. Let's rise and be ready for the buffet.